Guitarist, band leader, vocalist Glenn Kreitzer loves jazz age and swing era music and lives it, from his stylish vintage clothes to his swinging concerts. Glenn was deep into his studies in classical composition and cello at the Cleveland Institute of Music when he discovered swing dancing and the Lindy Hop. His dancing adventures furthered his interest in early jazz, inspiring him to teach himself guitar, banjo, and jazz arranging. Glenn then moved to New York, set aside that cello career, and now leads the Glenn Kreitzer Orchestra and his smaller band, the Savoy Seven, playing for fellow swing music lovers and feeding a craze that never completely goes out of style. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I asked Glenn Kreitzer about his journey from classical music to swing. The way I got into all of this music uh, was through dancing. Um, I started uh, when I was in college, uh, when swing dancing was very popular in the 90s, the kind of neo-swing thing, uh, was when I was uh, an undergraduate. And uh, I went out dancing and got into it, and I discovered the music through dancing, uh, and as well as, you know, the era and the fashion and, and, and all of that stuff. And my interest kind of developed from just, you know, what was very popular in the 90s, the kind of neo-swing thing, which was sort of more like swing fused with punk rock and kinds of other things, uh, and started digging backwards and, and digging a little deeper and finding this older stuff and, and getting more and more interested in that. was going to dances and things mm-hmm. like that. And I, being a musician, I was interested in the music I was hearing. I started collecting, you know, uh, CDs and stuff like that. I mean, it was CDs at that time. Still, it wasn't all streaming and started uh, DJing at dances and things like oh, that. Did so you I st- really? Yeah. So I started building a collection that way and then digging for more interesting stuff and started just digging backwards and backwards and backwards into the into the 30s and 40s and discovering you know the the bassy deca stuff and stuff like that Thank you. 
but I didn't start playing until I was I was in my masters. I was just kind of taking a break from the sort of heavy classical load. And, you know, I mean, the master's program is, can be pretty intense, especially I was doing composition. So it's like you're, you're playing, but you're also focusing on writing all of this music for your thesis and for your recital. And I needed a break over the summer. So I took up the banjo. Oh, really? It tuned the same as the cello. So it just seemed like sort of a fun way to let off steam, make music and do something that was just fun, just for fun. Um, and after I finished school, I, I just kind of kept going with it. And I started realizing that as a dancer, there wasn't, there weren't, there weren't many people out there making the music that we really wanted to dance to. There was a lot of modern jazz and a lot of Dixieland and things like that, but really trying to do the, the nuance of the swing era in an authentic way, there, there weren't many people doing it. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gave me an interest in saying, you know, I, I could make this music for my friends that we all really want to hear. And, <laughs> and then went to the guitar from there and just kind of, it just kind of snowballed. Now, if you're feeling the rhythm's what you need, if you got rhythm, you're sure to succeed. Rhythm is our business, business sure as well. He's the drummer man in the band. Andrew's the drummer man in this band. Oh, when he does tricks with sticks, boys in the band all play hot licks. He plays saxophone. In the band, that plays saxophone in the band. Oh, when it goes up that scale, deduct about little little My guest, Glenn Kreitzer, and his band on Rhythm Is Our Business. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. One of the things that I appreciate what you're doing is that you are doing it in an authentic way, and we should define that, I think, for our listeners, that with my career, which is long at this point, I've gone through many of these swing revivals. Everybody Mm -hmm. says it's coming back, and then it comes back again, and it comes back again, and you came to it when it came back in the 90s. But very often there will be groups that do not just a 
I'm, I'm being careful with how I say this, not because I don't want to offend anyone, because I don't care, but <laughs> that for my ears and for other musicians that I know, other sophisticated, developed musicians who are doing this well, they will be a poor man's version of it. Mm-hmm. Because I love it if somebody does something unusual, if it's at a high level. Right. And they're combining and doing some sort of fusion. Good for them. Right. But what they're doing is they pretend that it's authentic. And, Boy, yeah. <laughs> and, they're, and what it is is just a bunch of people who don't play as well who were doing a vague swing thing. Yeah. And so when I heard you, I was thrilled because you have a high level of musicians that you've put together who obviously care about presenting this at a high level. And that really struck me when I first heard your recordings. I just thought it was great. Well, thank you. I mean, that's that's definitely something I, I try to put a lot of work into, into, into those details of the era. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, and that can be frustrating with what you were saying, because you'll, you'll take a gig and somebody will go, yeah, you know, like a 20s thing, like, uh, you know, Artie Shaw. And I'm like, okay, well, he was around in the 20s, <laughs> but you, he wasn't known for that. I mean, you know, and, and there's all, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And it's, um, it's sort of balancing, it's finding ways to balance people's expectations while still doing you know, quality work and kind of manage that. That's like the push and pull of being a band leader, I think, is is finding ways to not sacrifice quality in for the sake of marketability. Even when I say authentic, mm-hmm. that might be the wrong word for it. I mean, high level. Sure. And because people want to have fun. Right. They want it to be swinging no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's more how I feel. In fact, it was, I got a call to be on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh yeah. And they wanted me to play her aunt and play. And it was a great exchange because the casting agent had just been, I'd been recommended. And so she, she emailed me and I called and I said, well, let me play you a tune. I said, and you may not know because she's a casting agent for many things. I said, you, this might just be dumb luck, but I'm exactly what her aunt, the style her aunt would, would play. Yeah. <laughs> and she didn't know that because mm-hmm. for those of our listeners who don't know that show, right. the show is taking place in the 50s. Right. So if you figure her aunt would be the age of somebody who would have come up in the 30s. 30s and, and playing, playing yeah, his music. So then of course, and, yeah. Yes, and so she was thrilled to pieces. That's great. But it doesn't... It doesn't need to be exactly that, but I I always like to think that it will be at a high level. Mm-hmm. And something else that has impressed me, and I'm curious about this, because I've talked to a number of people who have come up, as you have, in school at a later generation than mine, and I've talked to them about marketing and different things, and there's certainly more tools that you have than we had when I mm-hmm. was your age. And or when I was coming up in my 20s, because you have the internet and all these things. That's great, but it's also pressure. You yeah. have to know what you're doing with it, and you do it so beautifully. Oh, thank you. Were you taught any of that in school? Did anyone talk about that? No, I wish they had. I, I was actually having a conversation with a trombonist friend about this who has a um, a, a well-known group that's uh, like a, I don't quite exactly know how to describe the style of the group, but it's a, a brass kind of pop any, anyway, we were talking about, boy, I wish somebody would have taught us this in school, how to market what you do, how to 
book things, how to, how to network, how to do all of that stuff. And it's especially, I think, I mean, maybe they get it at, at places like Berkeley that are more pop music focused, but in conservatory, it's a lot of like practice and get a job in academia or in an orchestra. And that's kind of, well, extent. I've been told that I had someone yeah. work for me who graduated, she got her master's in flute mm-hmm. and it was, it was flattering and horrifying at the same time. I talked to her for an hour and a half on the phone, and this mm-hmm. was really for her to work for me and do some intern work. And at the end of the conversation, she said she'd learned more in the hour and a half talking to me about the possibilities of a career than she'd learned in five years of school. That was horrifying to me. That sounds She's, about right, though. Yeah. Wow. Because I, I was hoping that that had gotten better, but I just had somebody on the show in her 20s, mm-hmm. who Julia Keefe, and she said they didn't talk about it. She just got her man- master's from the Manhattan mm-hmm. School of Music. And it was all about the music. They did tell her, though, it was fascinating. And people will know this and listen to the show at one point. They told her how a jazz singer behaves on stage. Oh. Which was... I've, I've, I've... Would like to be a fly on the wall for that. That sounds fascinating. It, well, it sounded, it, that also sounded horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> to I mean, me. yeah. But how did you develop those skills? Because I encourage everybody to go to your site because of your music and obviously to listen to that and find out what you do. But also, you have what I also uh, greatly admire. You have an educational aspect of it, which mm-hmm. I try to do. I've only a couple, George Winston has a a whole thing on his side mm-hmm. about his influences, how to get those people. He recommend, I, I only found out because someone said that my books are recommended, oh, my great. music books. Mm-hmm. So here's somebody who's not only educating, he's generous mm-hmm. and leading people to other people, which I don't find many people do. Yeah. And yours is that way. You have a wonderful video. You have videos of you talking about it and explaining yeah. it. How did you develop that? How did you develop those skills? Because it's it's beautifully, beautifully done, Glenn. Very impressive. Well, I think it's it's a sort of combination, I guess, of trial and error mm-hmm. and a lot of um, beating my head against the wall at things not working and stuff like that. I think because I was a composition major as opposed to a cello major, one of the things that they do teach you in school is how to talk about your music um, as a composer. And that's pretty important for classical composers because the assumption is that people probably aren't going to get your music unless you talk about it right, when you're writing, right. so that's you know, atonal class. Yeah. So if you can give people a frame of reference and there's not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you look at a, a beautiful painting, you're going to understand it. You're going to, you're going to enjoy it more if you know more about it. Exactly. That's, that's always a, a given. So, um, so I do, I do think I learned a lot of, of how to talk about music when I was in school. And I think that that was an, an important thing as far as educating. And I think wanting, wanting to do things like I, I do this Patreon thing where people subscribe and it helps fund the big band. And then I do educational content every month. And one of the things that I like about doing that stuff is the deeper that I want to go with the music and the more, the more that I want to do, I want people to be able to hear that and get, what we're doing as a, as a group, you know, um, you know, a lot of people play charts from the thirties, the forties, they'll play Glenn Miller songs or, or Count Basie songs. But, um, but we're really trying to hone in on like the performance practice aspect. And so if there are people then who understand like the difference in that sound and those details, then they can better appreciate the music that we're, that we're making. 
Homesick as can be, Massachusetts, only place for me, Massachusetts. Got a special date with that New England state. How my heart will knock, Massachusetts, to see Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. Want to roam around, Massachusetts, in Nantucket Town, Massachusetts. I can hardly wait, I hope the train ain't late. You can't guess how much it means for me to be there. Childhood friends and childhood scenes for me to see there. Neath blue skies above Massachusetts With the one I love Massachusetts Just like Jack and Jill Massachusetts We'll climb Bunker Hill Massachusetts Spread the news around That Massachusetts I've said how much I admire your marketing skills. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that older musicians are admiring or resentful of that, or do you get any kind of vibe from that? You know, I I actually had a conversation about this recently with an older musician friend who's a very talented player, and we were talking about kind of how the industry has changed, and it also kind of with regard to streaming and how everything changes, and. I, I see some people who are who are resentful of it, and some people who dig it, and they're like, "But I could never do that." Because they feel like they're so from it goes an older both school. Ways. Yeah, but I think you know, like the industry is constantly changing. It's always been constantly changing, and so the question is, like, are you going to figure out how to keep with it, or are you going to, you know, become a fossil? And those are your choices. And even when you're making old music, you still have to find a way to bring it to people in a way that they're going to be willing to get it, you know? Right. Um, and so, I mean, I, that's kind of also the, the same thing I feel about um, uh, things like Spotify. Like I'm not a big Spotify fan in terms of like, I wish it paid better, but at the same time, you got to find, you got to find a way to make it in the new, whatever the market is, you know, and, right. and how, however people want to ingest their music, you got to get it to them. So. Right. No, I was curious about that because I've had, it happened to me because I was always aware of this because like you, learning how to sell classical mm-hmm. composition, which has got to be the smallest niche known to man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Balinese Gamelon. Yeah, I was the equivalent of that because mm-hmm. I was a 20-year-old Southern California girl playing stride piano. Right. Nobody even knew what it was. No one cared. No, it hadn't been popular in 30 years. So I assumed I'd have to frame it in a way that people would find out about it or find out about me and be willing to listen to it. And I had a number of times that people assumed, because they told me later that they assumed I had gotten the gig because I was a young blonde girl. Mm-hmm. And that was really why I got it. And I marketed myself well. Then they heard me and they said, oh, my gosh, you can play. Right. Yeah. So that that's a challenge, mm-hmm. I think, sometimes in our business because you do market well. Then the musicians think, well, they probably can't really play. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has shifted now because everyone knows you have to market well. Because I really came 
I made my big splash in the 80s when there was still a viable jazz world. There were mm-hmm. still lots of festivals. There were things like that. So it was unusual to have somebody who was good at marketing themselves because right. we, because I didn't have a big record label. I've always had my own. But now, I guess my question is, doesn't everyone know you have to market yourself? Or I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious. I don't know. I think it's the opposite problem now. I think you have a lot of people, a whole lot of people who can market themselves, ah. but maybe can't. Can't deliver it, you know. There is a lot of that so in now the world. It, so it's, now it is true. Yeah, now it is true. You know. Well, talk about your your wonderful CDs because one of the things many many years ago that I talked to Vince Giordano, the great Vince, the great Vince Giordano, the, the Nighthawks, who was boy, go talk about Sisyphus. This guy was trying to get it going, and uh-huh. I can remember when I came to New York, he was the first musician I met. Oh yeah, and. He, he, his big problem, or one of his problems, was getting musicians to play in the style. Mm-hmm. He had all these great musicians who he would have this beautiful chart, and then suddenly Charlie Parker started playing. Yeah. And he has told me that that's less of a problem now, that people mm-hmm. are more inclined to play stylistically, that he doesn't. It's interesting because I had him on the show a second time many years yeah. later. And I wonder for you, because you have many, you have some of the older musicians, you also have younger musicians. In mm-hmm. fact, you've got overlap. You've got some of the same people. Yeah, a couple guys. Do your musicians, are they happy playing in this style? Do they edge out? Do you have to say, eh, eh, don't do that? Or do they, do they get with the program is my question. I, I think they're all really people who are into it. Ah. And so there's still, from my perspective as band leader, there's still things where I'm going, oh, I want this a little more like this. Or yeah. I want this a little more like this. But it's not like, oh man, why why can't I just play like Bird? You know, we don't. We don't it, there's a lot of reasons you can't play like Bird. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't know. You tell me why you can't play like Bird. I don't. Know. I can't play like Bird. Um, but I, I think it's it's, um, and that's one of the things about our group that like. I feel has it, there's a really good energy among the musicians because they're all it's mostly younger guys um, and there's a couple of older guys and middle guys in the scene which it it, it brings a good energy kind of having people from from different uh, age groups and have been through different things and come up in different ways but they're all sort of like great players who are into this and so it just brings a certain energy to the band that we're like hey we're we're all guys who are into this we're all good at it. We want to make this thing. We want to make it as good as we can. And it creates a really good, not just on stage, but off stage, just a good synergy between the the players.
the Glenn Kreitzer Orchestra on Jubilee Stomp. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway and Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to podcasts of Jazz Inspired on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. And email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Stride Queen. November 19th, I'll be appearing at Steinway Hall in Manhattan for my annual champagne fundraiser for Jazz Inspired. I'll have special guests Ben Patterson, Harry Allen, Chris Flory, and many others. Visit the events page at judycarmichael.com for details. We are funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in and keep us on air. 2020 marks our 20th year, and we need your support to make it all happen. Thank you. My guest today is guitarist band leader Glenn Kreitzer. I want to talk about some of your influences, and you brought me some George Barnes, who I love, but I didn't have this track. So mm-hmm. talk about this. So George Barnes was um, he was the first person to record on electric guitar. So obviously a um, you know a hero of mine because of that, but also a really fantastic arranger. He was uh, in the NBC Studio Orchestra. Uh, from the time he was, I think, 17 when he got the job, very, very young. And he put together a group, an octet out of uh, NBC players. Uh, so it's it's a very unusual group for jazz. It's a, a flute, an oboe, a clarinet, and a bassoon. So wind quintet, no saxophones, and then uh, uh, two guitars, bass, and drums. And he wrote a bunch of arrangements for this group in 1946, And they're just fascinating small group arrangements. There's very little improvisation other than uh, Barnes uh, improvising. But um, just really ingenious use of of the winds and all these colors. And it's, it's just fascinating arranging. Thank you. 
You told me about the people you chose to study with. Mm-hmm. When you made this move, coming from a classical player, and now you're playing jazz when you came to New York. Mm-hmm. And I loved it, because I know all these people. I played with all these people. Mm-hmm. And it was such a variety yeah. of all in different directions, and you learn different things. And one of the first one was Chris Flory. Yeah. And talk about Chris Flory, why you chose Chris Flory, mm-hmm. because he's obviously a favorite of mine. Listeners to this show know that I use Chris all the time. Sure. So that was a very different, because he's self-taught, Yeah, came up out of the blues, mainly Jimi Hendrix, yeah. all of that. But then, of course, work with Benny Goodman. And talk about how you found Chris right. and why you studied with him, what you were hoping to learn. Sure. Well, I, I had heard about him from people and then found him on YouTube, clips of him and stuff like that. And, um, you know, for me, it was everything is always about digging back into older styles. Mm-hmm. So if I hear, oh, there's this guy who you know worked with Benny Goodman and he plays like Charlie Christian and he's into that whole bag, I want to go find out what he's, what I can learn there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's, there's so much to that era that, you know, is, has been forgotten or is only remembered by a few people here or there. And it's just a matter of like trying to aggregate as much of that knowledge as you can um, mm-hmm. from, from as many good people, as well as like just the, you know, the guitar technique stuff, you know, the, the physicality of the instrument that is, uh, um, that you just have to develop and people have different approaches and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I came out when I was visiting New York, I was out here for a couple of gigs and I took a lesson with Chris and this was, you know, a number of years back. Um, and, uh, James Trillo and John Reynolds out on the, the West coast and a bunch of great players just trying to see what I could get from here and there. And, you know, uh, especially not being in a place where, you know, I could study with anybody, you know, regularly. So it was just like, okay, I'm here for a gig. I'm here for a gig. Let's, let's see what we can learn while we're in town. So talk more about John Reynolds, because he's another one that I would imagine for someone like you would be a, a model stylistically, not just musically, but he really has that style and that history. And for people who don't know his music, Mm -hmm. John, He's, well, he's the grandson of Zazu Pitts that everybody mm-hmm. thinks is Zazu Pitts, but right. I know, because I know John, that yeah. it was Zazu Pitts, the great silent film actress mm-hmm. and then comedic actress. And so we had a whole Hollywood background, knew that music very well. And for a fellow Californian, it was unusual because he was many generations Californian, which was very unusual yeah. when I was coming up. Most people, most baby boomers, my generation, were first-generation Californians because their parents came from somewhere else. So John was sort of this exotic who was many generations California. So talk about meeting John. That must have been mind-blowing for you. Yeah, you know, it was when I first... So I I played banjo first, and then I switched to guitar. And John is also, of course, a great banjo player. Right. Um, And so I had been playing guitar for maybe a year at that point. This is about... uh, What is this, 2019 now? So this was... 20, 2009, maybe 10 years ago or something like that. And um, John was in town in Seattle for a gig. And I said, hey, can I, can I get a lesson with you? And, uh, and he was there for like a weekend of gigs. And so I went over, it was at Casey McGill's house in Casey's backyard. And I took a, I took a lesson from John in Casey's backyard. And he showed me a bunch of really cool stuff and all of this stuff. And I was like, wow, this, I'm going to work on them. I have this for months to work on. This is great. Um, and then I showed up at the gig he was playing that night. 
uh, and it was a dance. And he, he saw me come in, and the next solo he played, he played every single thing he taught me in the solo and just looked at me the whole time. Didn't even look at his fingers. Just went, and, that, and he's just looking at me like, and that thing, and that thing, and that thing. <laughs> and I'm just like, who is that? Where did this guy come from? He's, I mean, he's just an incredible uh, player and an incredible showman, too, who's you know one of those people that not only, I mean, ha- has that showman thing and really can backs it up. My goal has always been, you know, I love all these old bands and I like playing, you know, if I'm going to play an Artie Shaw chart, I want to do it really well and get those details of like, but my bands, I'm not trying to be a copy of the Artie Shaw band. Right. At the same time, I feel like it's, I mean, and this is sort of a larger discussion about what creativity is, but I, um, there's no reason that you can't have a band today that works within the framework and style of 1940 and plays charts that were popular in 1940 and also plays their own charts, but that has its own voice as a band. And this is one of the challenging things that I find hard to put across in marketing the band Mm. and in in selling what we do is that um, people kind of look at it and you're like, well, you're playing that old stuff. I don't know. We want, we want something new if it's the jazz world, right? If the Mm. the jazz bookers, whereas Mm. if it's a, 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 a more sort of, general booker they'll say well well we don't want something new we just want something you know we 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 want exactly like glenn miller or or this so it's it's explaining to people that yeah you can have this old thing um and still do something new with it while being very distinctly in that style not updating not changing but having your own voice within that and i think that's a really 20th century problem because the 20th century totally changed what creativity was supposed to be about in the art world. Um, Prior to the 20th century, if you think about, you know, the great like classical masters, um, there was a stylistic thing that was happening and you created within that. There were a set of parameters just created by like, this is what classical music is, or this is what romantic music is at, at any given time. And you worked within those parameters and maybe you kind of pushed the boundaries of it a little and, and people criticized you for it. Like they criticized Beethoven for doing that. But ultimately it was about the voice that you were expressing within the set of parameters. The 20th century, and not just the music, but arts in general, um, everything became about parameters. So it was all about tacking up day glow paper in the woods and calling that a piece of music or, you know, burning a piano and calling that a piece of music and then just saying, how far can we push the parameters? And art became about what you're doing with the parameters and less about what you're communicating within those parameters. So we get now to the 21st century and we're like, okay, well, we've done everything. We've, we've burned pianos. We've, you know, put music in elevators. We've, we've done all this crazy stuff. Um, so there's no reason that you can't still select your own parameters, but I think people are starting hopefully to come back around to the idea that uh, music and art is supposed to also be about communicating something to people, not just about finding something that nobody's done. And so I think in terms of looking back at, at old music, there's no reason that I can't choose that set of parameters to say 1940, that's my set of parameters, or 1935 or 1926 or whatever but still find a unique voice within that.
my guest, guitarist Glenn Kreitzer, and his Savoy 7 on Hop on the Mop. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. What I think is interesting is that, you know, the last 70 years of popular, maybe 60 years or so of popular music has been uh, songwriters largely presenting their own work for the most part and more and more and more. And now with maybe modern pop music, it's less and less of that. But even with the hip hop and stuff, it's largely, you know, these guys are writing their own stuff and they're presenting it. And that is, it wasn't that way prior to that, as we know, obviously, with the, with the songbook stuff. But one of the things I always find fascinating is that, you know, I wanted to do a program somewhere, and they said, well, what's your idea for a program? And like, how about all originals? And they said, well, wait, I don't know if we can sell that. And it's like, but people go to hear people play all their own originals all the time. If you go to hear Bob Dylan, you're not really paying to hear him play covers, maybe a few, but mostly you want to hear Bob Dylan play Bob Dylan. Um, and, you know, the boomers forward have that's been what they've come to expect when they go to a concert. So I think, I think actually the originals help people connect to the older songs. Whereas maybe 30 years ago, the older songs would kind of give you a path to help people connect to the originals. Right. Right. And that audience is changing. Yeah. One of your favorites is Basie. You brought me a wonderful Basie. Mm -hmm. Honeysuckle Rose. Two things I love. I always end with that song. Yeah. And Basie's my big influence. So talk about that, that, his track. That recording, I feel like, is sort of like the high point of maybe swing music. I don't know. I mean, it's so <laughs> great. It's just the it first, is. the piano solo, the first two choruses are just like, it's just so swinging. I mean, you put that on and you're just like, if it doesn't make you happy, nothing, nothing's going to make you happy. <laughs> and Lester Young just comes in with that perfect break over Joe Jones' hi-hat. I mean, it's just... When you get Joe, Joe Jones, you can hear so clearly he's playing the hi-hat stand for the first two choruses. It's such a quintessential Joe Jones sound where he's playing the hat and the stand, which you can't do with a modern hi-hat stand. It's like very era-specific. I mean, it's just it's just perfect, you know? Perfect bassy. Why can't you do it with a modern? I'm curious. I don't know anything about this. The, uh, the older hi-hat stands were thinner metal, especially like the cheap ones. Not right. all of them, but the guys would buy the cheap stands because they were uh, a thinner metal right and then when you hit the stand with the stick it would make a ping sound if you get a modern hi-hat stand they're thicker and heavier and they don't make th- that sound they don't make a sound they just go because they're <laughs> because they're they're thick because they're because they kind of build them with rock guys in mind they're, they're gonna play really hard and so they want these things to be sturdy That's fantastic. More, i mean certainly older hi-hat stands break a lot more they need a lot more maintenance but um, but, but they don't. Totally you can't do it. it. Oh, it was so hard to dig one of those up. Can it was you even really hard to find? Do you have one? I have one. I I managed to find one of the, a guy out in Pennsylvania who does vintage as a vintage drum shop dug one up for me and. Oh, Joe would be proud. Yeah, it's 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 the sound. It's so nothing. There's no way to replace it.
You have to talk about two of my early influences. I was so thrilled when I saw your list, Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, just listened to those things forever. Yeah, talk mean, about why they were both so special, what they did, and educate our audience because they may not know who this is. Well, they were the, I mean, just, you know, as individual musicians apart from each other, I mean, they were sort of the first real jazz virtuosos on their instruments. Um, Eddie Lang on guitar and Joe Venuti on violin. Certainly there had been plenty of violin players. I mean, every band had violins in the twenties and then you know, often, you know, Paul Whiteman played the violin and all the band leaders, but mostly the violins gig was doubling the melody up an octave and maybe, you know, playing violinistic things, but not really improvising. And Venuti was the first really great jazz improviser on the violin followed, you know, then by people like Stefan Grappelli and stuff Smith and, and, and all those that came later. Um, but he was kind of, uh, he was the master of that and he did all kinds of crazy stuff, taking the bow apart and playing with the, you know, the bow turn. I can't even, it's, this is radio, so I can't uh, give anybody a visual, but I'm it's, getting to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, so Eddie Lang, on the other hand, was the kind of the first great jazz guitar virtuoso. And this was pre-amplification. The amplification doesn't come in until uh, 1936 and 37. Uh, 37, and then the first recordings are early 38. But um, uh, Eddie playing acoustically with just big, heavy strings and a loud archtop guitar, and he, they would situate him near the mic. Um, at that time, the guitar wasn't really a solo instrument a, a, within a band. You could play guitar solos, but not within a band just because of the level of volume. I mean, there's just only so much sound you can get out of a guitar. So even Eddie's solos are very much sort of like just picking as hard as you can. They're not complex because you're trying to project that sound. But his accompaniments are unbelievable. There's there's nothing, nobody's ever been able to do that again. And I don't know that anybody ever will. I mean, it's just... It, it, it comes, I think, from that kind of Italian string tradition, mm. which, of course, there's lots of guys, you know, who are part of that, you know, the Pizzarellis and all those guys that that's carried right on through. Um, but Eddie was, you know, that, that kind of playing, nobody really does that anymore. Um, mm. It's where it's just so virtuosic, so swinging, just the, the perfect accompanist and, and playing, you know, with piano and still finding these spaces to just make beautiful things behind a singer or behind an instrumentalist. I mean, like you listen to Sing in the Blues and everybody's like, yeah, Bix. And okay, but yeah, but that's, it's all about Eddie Lang. <laughs> Sing in the Blues is all about Eddie Lang. All the crazy stuff he's doing behind them to just make a rhythm section of, you know, piano and guitar sound like, you know, a 40 piece orchestra behind those guys. It's, it's unbelievable.
got me very optimistic, Glenn, about the future of this and and how you're approaching it. I encourage everybody to look at your website, which I think is fabulous. And as I said, educational. And it's it's just such joyous music, not just because this happens to be a style that I like, but that is always why I think people are drawn to this music, don't you? I think so, yeah. I mean it's 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 affirming, you know, it lifts people up. I mean that's that's why through the depression, this is what people listen to to lift their spirits. Yeah, so. well, and, and things are pretty depressed right now. I think this is a good... <laughs> it's getting a little <laughs> dark to, out there. Not, yeah. to get, not to get political, yeah. but it was... Uh, I, I taught a woman's empowerment group of all the top... There were 15 top students, yeah. women leaders at Fordham, and it's now going to be an annual event. Great. And I remember when I was in college, we were just going to take over the world, and everybody was really positive. And I walked in there, and none of them were artists, mm-hmm. which was interesting. I've never talked to... Well, I did teach 125 law students, believe it or not, at Michigan once. I was scheduled for a music class, and uh, they messed up the schedule. <laughs> and I'd flown in for a concert in a class, and he said, all I have are lawyers. I said, let me have them. Great. And so I taught a law class. That was great experience. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. But this was interesting because it occurred to me that none of the women, they were all scientists and business people. I mean, really stellar women. Yeah. And none of them artists. I thought, oh, well, that's off the table. I don't have to talk about how you survive. It's a different thing. Uh-huh. But what really struck me was they were very engaged in my being there. They'd all read my memoir. They were all this was set up for this kind of thing and my being a woman in business all these years. But it it was fairly dark, yeah. I have to say. And I thought, wow. 
because college is when you're still optimistic usually. Right. So if ever there was a time for swing music, I, I know it's you now. Know. People go out, swing dance. Yeah. Hear you do this, and thank you. You're out here at my house in Sag Harbor. I never I, recorded. It's beautiful here. out here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You've got a gig tonight, very nearby. Yeah. yeah. So That's, I'm glad the timing worked out. So. I am too on a beautiful day in the Hamptons. Indeed. So thank you, Glenn. This has been great fun. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me on the show. You've been listening to my conversation with Glenn Kreitzer. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can download free podcasts of Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired from all the usual podcast platforms or listen at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with my Cashmon sax and Chris Glory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway and Sons. I'll be appearing at Steinway Hall November 19th in Manhattan for my annual champagne fundraiser for Jazz Inspired. I'll have special guests Ben Patterson, Harry Allen, Chris Flory, and many others. Visit the events page at judycarmichael.com for details. We're funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in and keep us on air. Any donation is appreciated. And 2020 marks our 20th year, and we need your support to make it all happen. Thank you. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at StrideQueen. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is also sponsored in part by Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Page at 63 Main at opentable.com. For additional information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com. Mm-hmm.